why not consider joining us on Patreon? Even at the basic level, you'll get all our content ad-free, excluding show videos, of course. You'll also get access to the Sonic Talk pre-show and a few exclusive videos. In fact, we just posted the Game Changer Audio Motor Synth Mark II Extended Director's Cut, which has an extra seven minutes of content. But if you join at the upper level, not only will you get that, you'll get exclusive video. Uh, in fact, I think we posted an Osmos Friday Fun Extra Bits. There's also extended playing for the Super Gemini video we've recently posted sample sets and don't forget you also at both layers get onto our discord so why not consider joining us in this time when ads are a bit harder to come by just helps us keep doing what we're doing thanks very much for watching uh, hello and welcome to uh, Sonic Talk Special. We're very pleased to be able to talk to Jessica Powell here from Audio Shake who are the company behind, I mean, it's not unique exactly what you do in terms of stem processing, but from the stuff that I've heard, the quality of the output is incredibly unique. And I suppose really just to sort of uh, maybe highlight this, you know, audio stems are the technology that allow you to separate pre-mixed audio into constituent parts. For those of you perhaps are not completely familiar with it, although why would you be watching Sonic State if you didn't know anything about it? I don't know. Anyway, Jessica, lovely to have you. Uh, I hope uh, everything's good for you. Are you in California at the moment? I am, yeah. Excellent. Well, your your your, your CV is glittering. Ex Google, uh, author. Uh, you play instruments as well, right? You, I, I seem to recall. I do. I do. Probably much worse than a lot of your listeners, but I, I definitely do. Yeah. Uh, bass and piano, though. Bass, it's been a while. Uh, once I had kids, all of the bass sort of disappeared and then it got replaced with like holiday songs on the piano, just sort of a oh my. depressing thing. But I'll get back into it at some point. How many? Yes, it's that repetition syndrome, which is can be a little bit soul destroying. I realize you turn into, <laughs> well, sort you of into autopilot. Yeah. the worst form of wedding band is your living nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> so Jessica I mean really fascinating what Audio Shake do I mean perhaps I, I was looking at through to it and it seems like you kind of operate on several different stratas in terms of you know how you provide your service you know there's the sort of uh, the, the, the web interface based sort of upload this get the stems back you can do WAVs you can do mp3s and it sounds like also you've been working with kind of spe special cases where you perhaps put a bit more sort of human uh, interaction with a, a particular case. Like I, I think you were talking to a friend of ours, Chris at GPU Audio, about uh, how you worked on the Nina Simone multitracks. What what is what what would you you know what's the kind of the potted the elevator pitch? You know what do you tell your parents you do and how does it work? <laughs> sure. Um, what do I tell my parents that I do? I, yeah, um, that's a very good question. I think I'll start at a, at a different. What do we do? Yeah. We yeah. What um, do you do? Audio shake. Audio Shake uh, helps make audio interactive and accessible, editable uh, through something called audio source separation or stem separation. Um, we essentially use deep learning to be able to extract uh, or deconstruct or demix. You can use the term you like, but basically be able to separate audio into its component parts or stems. So when we work on film, for example, we're separating dialogue, music, and effects when we're working on um, in really dirty audio environments or uh, could be, for example, just extracting really clean speech. Um, you could, it could also be uh, in the music side where we are separating a piece of music, the full mix, into its different instrument stems. Um, and so we work with uh, everyone from uh, all three major label groups and large publishers and indies and distributors and so forth, uh, as well as, you know, 
uh, amateur and aspiring artists through to film studios, streaming platforms, um, uh, and, and sports teams even as well. So everyone kind of has different things that they need to be able to do. Um, but it, at the heart of it is this idea of being able to get at the audio at a more granular level. In some cases, that's because someone has a project where they're going to be working in a DAW and they need to be able to edit the stems. They don't have access to the stems. In other cases, it can be because they're dealing with audio at such scale that they need that being able to get the real stems uh, is prohibitive or it, they can't work in a coding environment with stems that are all labeled differently and of different quantity and so on and so forth. So it really does range depending on the use case. Um, you asked about humans. We actually, uh, it's pretty rare that we do projects that involve human intervention. Um, occasionally we'll be uh, put onto a project. We have, like you said, we have an API. We also have uh, SDKs for, you know, for on the developer side. Um, and then we have um, an on-demand platform, one that serves sort of the industry and another one that's just uh, open to use that's called Audio Shake Indie. Um, not all of that across the board, whether we're talking about the SDK or the online platforms, all of that is is AI. Um, but we do sometimes with some of our enterprise clients, they will have specific projects where they do need an extra touch or something mm. like that. So a good example of that is um, we did some work on a track from the 1930s. The AI actually separated it perfectly, <laughs> the, which, which might not be the case. I don't want to say that every single time you're working on old mono track that you're not going to end up with any artifacts or anything like that. Um, but in this case, the AI separated it perfectly. The problem was that once you separated it, um, you could hear a muffling of the mic. It actually sounded like a body was being dragged across the room. Um, <laughs> in those cases, then it's really useful to be able to bring in someone who can do uh, like spectral editing, you know, for a few hours and get right. that track to the level that it needs for the commercial use. Is part of what you do stems for commercial purposes or you do, would you say mostly to do with fixing issues and kind of creating uh, assets for people who don't have access to them? If we were thinking of uh, industry professionals using our enterprise tool or uh, folks using our Audio Shake Indie tool, I'd say the most common uses there are people creating instrumentals or stems for things like sync licensing right. or for Dolby Atmos or Sony 360 mixing. Um, in both of those cases, that is where the stems don't exist, right? Like if you have access to the stems, why would you then go and create, use AI to create them, right? You already have the real stems. Great. Um, those are the two biggest uses. We also see um, people using them sometimes to do sample removal before a track is distributed. So being able to split that audio down and remove that baseline that was sampled and maybe can't get cleared. Um, we also see it for remastering projects um, and different kinds of fan engagement projects. Like Green Day used our technology to basically make it possible for their fans to play along, play guitar along with the band on TikTok. Or One Republic used it to isolate Ryan Tedder's vocals in a live concert. Um, AJR used it a few weeks ago. Uh, with an with a, a song like a singer songwriter on TikTok and Instagram, where he was trying to guess at what was inside the AJR track. So you see kind of fun things like that too. So all of those, whether we're talking about the sync license or what AJR did, are kind of all in the realm of um, kind of one-off projects, right? right? Specific projects for commercial 
perhaps monetizable, perhaps not monetizable, just listening experience type things. Then you have everything that's happening at scale. And there, the the projects are quite broad. Um, We work with some apps that are making audio interactive and responsive to, say, a user's movements or a user's input. So, for example, uh, the AR app and Snap Lens, Mini Beats, right? If you raise your hand like this, maybe a ball of fire shoots out of your hand, and at the same time, the energy of the bass increases. So making audio responsive in really subtle ways, you obviously need to be able to split that audio into stems, um, and you should be able to do that at scale for tons and tons of tracks. So that kind of thing. Or we work with um, companies that are needing to remove, uh, again, in the thousands or hundreds of thousands of minutes, um, need to be able to remove voiceovers from tracks to be able to analyze underlying audio. Um, anyway, I could keep going, but the, yeah, the basic I, yeah, idea. I, I could see what I could see. What, so, I mean, are you using? I suppose the de- uh, uh, definitions also. Is it is it strictly AI or is it more machine learning? Because I know machine learning's been used in this way. You have a sort of large body of work that is used as the model. I suppose the model is made from the large body of work. Is is, is there a difference, or is it pretty much the same thing in this case? Uh, I mean, we what we do is an area of deep learning. Um, so it's, uh, it's a pretty established field, like audio source separation. It's used everything from, um, uh, you know, in, if you're using a, uh, an Alexa or a Google home and they're trying to distinguish between the person in the foreground and the person in the background. Right. Um, I've actually never talked to anyone of those teams, but I assume that they're using some sort form of source separation for that. Um, or again, in um, there's certainly music applications, but it's used a ton in across kind of different kinds of audio. Um, and you know what makes music interesting is and harder and also computationally more expensive and it's just more complex. Um, is that you have to separate this in separate and output this in high resolution. Um, and all of that means slower processing time and, um, and greater expense. And so one big portion of the task, in addition to the actual separation is in optimizing the AI to be able to do this faster without losing any quality. It's interesting. I mean, because of listening to the stems, there are sort of it's the detail i mean they're very very present there's there's little of what i call munging that you hear in general examples of this the reverb tails are incredibly clean and there's also because if you're taking a, a vocal off like a 70s disco mix i think there was an example that you used for uh, the film babylon where that was pushing the dynamic uh, processing of that final master yet the instrumental is not sort of riding the vocal i mean that do you are, are you looking at those sort of things or am i am i sort of imagining more than more than it's already doing no absolutely i mean on the research side they get very very detailed like for example if i were to think about our models a year ago um the drums didn't really snap the way that you would have wanted sometimes mm. the bass could sound a little bit muddy mm. um and so that was something that we very 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 much focused on um, because we knew that that was a weakness. Another good example was EDM. A year ago, um, it, it was funny. I would be talking to labels, and they would be very, very excited about the technology. But maybe they'd only tested it on rock, you know. And yeah. I, and my, and I would, I would always want to be transparent. I'd be like, "Well, this is great. You can use it for this portion of your catalog. But on EDM, we're probably not there for you yet." So EDM, that was another thing that was very. And again, not that we were thinking about it so much from a genre perspective, but rather like what are the characteristics of that genre and where are models failing 
in, in delivering the experience that they should. Um, so yeah, we definitely look at, at all those kinds of things. And then when we're measuring performance, those, those are the qualities that we're, that we're looking for. So it sounds like, I mean, there has to be a certain amount of human ears on the kind of the tweaking of the algorithms and the way it, uh, the way it responds, because otherwise, you know, if you left it to the machine, there would be no qualitative control effectively. I mean, it would be Oh, harder. sure. I mean, I think that's a general, I'm sure I can think of exceptions, but I think that's a generally true statement, at least about the state of AI today, hmm. which is that there are all kinds of human decision points that are made in terms of what is the training data how are you, what, like building the model, refining the model, you know, if you were, for example, one of the topics, not to go kind of too far off piece here, but you know, one of the topics that comes up a lot in AI is this idea of the AI teaching itself and getting better and better and mm. self-optimizing and so on and so forth, which, you know, fine. If we were to do that today, though, the metric that you would use, for example, to measure performance in source separation in, in music separation, um, is something called the SDR score. Um, and if, and, and it's a useful metric because it's useful to have metrics, right. Mm, to have benchmarks yeah. to measure things, but you and anyone you're listening to who works with audio every day knows that there's so much, there's so much that is subjective within audio, right. If we just use that benchmark to then determine what our models should do and what the targets were for our models, um, we would actually end up optimizing for that score rather than optimizing for um, what humans would perceive to be well-separated audio. Yeah. So we, when we started our company, we used that metric a lot to measure our performance. And then in, if I think about the past year, we've actually moved away from it quite a bit because we've seen it's useful, but you also need to establish human kind of benchmarks of, for example, let's really go for, you know, making these drums snap um, because the SDR score won't get you there on its own. Right. So I'm simplifying a little bit, but my yeah, point right. is more just that there is, at least with the state of AI today, there's still a lot of human involved in terms of de like defining the task and defining how you're going to accomplish the task. But then after that, yes, you hand it over to the machines. It does. I mean, AI definitely, from my experience, worked better with uh, a benign guidance from a human than just sort of left to its own devices anyway. So do you have to, uh, Im is it important that the input, the metadata, because I mean, you know, if you're like you were saying, EDM didn't snap, whereas rock was working fine. I mean, do you find that there are, are mu is the more complex the music, the more difficult it is to tweak the model for? Or do you have to kind of say this is a guitar rock track when you're uploading it so that it knows which branch of the model to take to apply itself to? No, um, you know, we, we try and build our models to generalize well. Uh, maybe there is some future state where you would have individual models for individual genres, but um, I think there's other things that we would tackle first before we would go and specifically be looking at um, a genre-specific model. Right. Um, it's more, you know, for example, what's challenging about um, EDM? Well, there's a lot of synth, right? Mm. And what is a synth, actually? Like, what is yeah. a bass synth? Is it bass or is it a synth? You know? Um, and when those frequencies are similar to other frequencies, for example, right? How, how are you distinguishing between one instrument and another? So, um, and that's a problem that happens in EDM. It can obviously happen elsewhere too. So if you can solve that with EDM in mind, you might be able to solve it with other genres too. So yeah, we don't, um, like I said, we don't really 
for the most part, it wasn't that we were saying, let's go build an EDM model or let's, but rather saying, here's a general problem with our model. How do we, how do we do better on this problem, which will help us do better on this genre, but probably will also help us in other genres as well. So, I mean, I notice obviously there's some tracks which are quite complex. There's sort of one thing's masking another thing, you know, and it gets quite difficult to differentiate between. I mean, are you are you resynthesizing any of the gaps in there? Is there any sort of like this bit seems to be missing or the the, the vocal caused the backing track to duck away too much? So you're kind of almost kind of re, not recreating, but fixing problems that the process creates. Yeah, it's a really good question. I you know, ask me this in two years, maybe I'll have a different answer. I think the difficulty, you, you, so you absolutely could do some level of post-processing. For example, I mean, ducking is a really good example, right? Um, yeah. Where you're, the AI is actually behaving as intended, right? There was ducking on that track and you are, you're like, and then the stems show that. Um, I think the issue potentially with some post-processing is you don't know always who your client or your user is and what their targets are. Hmm. So would someone, so someone maybe working in sync licensing, a music editor would be very happy to have you, I'm guessing here, I've not had this specific question, but uh, would probably be happy to have you fix, so to speak, that ducking, right? Yeah. On the other hand, someone who is um, working in spatial, right? Hmm. If they want everything faithful to the track, right? And they're not, they want the wet stems, not the dry stems. Then you going about mucking around with making changes post-processing might hurt their, their mixing experience. I mean, one thing that we saw when we started working on this was, for example, in sync licensing, a lot of times the music editors, music supervisors really just want clean separation. Yeah. And sometimes on the mixing, whereas versus like when you're talking about immersive mixing, um, you know, or, or even on the more restoration archival kind of side, they're like, you know what, keep, we'd rather have the occasional artifact provided that you keep the sense of presence as faithful to the original as possible versus the, like the cleanest, most aggressive separation possible. Right. Um, and so I think that's just something we have to be mindful of if we look at certain kinds of automatic repair, so to speak. Not everyone's going to want that repair. Yeah, I mean, there's the, the many, many cases, and I suppose it's easier to fix. But that's the thing that I really notice about the examples. I mean, it's hard to tell specifically because the examples on the websites are generally MP3 based. You're not hearing the original WAVs, and the, I'd love to hear some of that stuff. If there's any links to examples, that would be great to see. But, I mean, is there... Is there a danger that sometimes just because you can, should you? Because in some ways, like you say, you when you're hearing, you 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 can explode the myth to a degree. You know, some someone might not be all that comfortable with uh, seeing how badly they fluffed <laughs> their part, or you know, sometimes the sum of the parts isn't does not equal the individual elements, and it's right. sort of it, it all completely falls apart. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. So you know, when we started the company. Um, it was really important to us that we work with the industry that we, because we thought it, we didn't think of this as, oh, we're just building a, like an equalizer. Mm, and yeah. we wanted to be respectful of the fact that some people wouldn't want everything split apart, for example. Yeah. And so our thought was if we work directly with the labels and the managers and the artists and the people that are the closest to this work, that 
you're much more likely to end up in a better outcome and in a way that benefits artists and helps them open up their work when they want it to be opened up. Um, and so that's really been fundamental to our approach. And it, it means, unfortunately, sometimes that there are probably very like great and legitimate, you know, audio engineers and so forth that have a good use case, you know, for the technology and, um, and that is very respectful because right, that's part of their lifeblood and their work every single day. But because we haven't, you know, because they might've just happened onto our open tool or something like that, they haven't been able to access the technology the way they wanted to, um, and haven't gotten in touch with us. And so we haven't been able to onboard them. And that's really unfortunate. And I'd love to figure out a way to, to, to improve that over time. But, um, but we wanted just to be a little bit more cautious, um, going into all this. And that's, I think a real, a difference too, between our technology and the others. Yes, it's the quality, but it's also that we, from the start were, um, you know, going directly to the people whose right. work it was or who were trying to be it. respectful of the rights holders and the, and the creators, which I think is, is refreshing because I mean, I think for many creators, the term AI and just this whole sort of area feels people are quite threatened by it. You know, I noticed um, in your statement, you know, you're, you're, you don't work in, you're not work. it's non-generative. That's the area that you're kind of working in, in this creative space, at least for now. And that's an important differentiation, right? I mean, I guess I think, uh, yes, yeah, so I wouldn't, I guess I wouldn't talk about us as, oh, we, you know, we're not generative or we are generative. And therefore, I don't think that because you do generative, that that inheritively means that you are disrespectful of creators. Oh, sure. No, I wouldn't say that. Because you are not doing generative, that means you're respectful, right? Right. You know, I mean, I think a lot of stem separation, for example, is trained on, um, you know, authors, like creators works just the way generative is, right? Um, Without any licensing in place. I think there's also like what, you know, there's also a lot of, um, services that are doing stem separation and are, you know, like separating the Isley brothers and just selling the Isley brothers onto people and the Isley brothers never get paid for that. And I, I've never thought about it from like a legal context. I'm not a lawyer. I've just thought about it from the most basic creator point, which is like, if you are, if some, like, I feel like art has always been a conversation and we've always built off of other people's art. And it's always been a, it's never been a strict thing of this is mine and I created it and you'll never use it because we've seen time and time again, incredible art that has come out from exactly that across all the media. Right. Um, uh, but I do think that it's really important for us to have mechanisms in place that when, so for example, like I think DJs are incredible. I think remixes are incredible. I think the whole ecosystem around remixing is screwed up, right? The original artists, things aren't detected. And then the original artists don't get paid. The DJs don't, you know, get paid or remix. Sorry. The remixers don't get paid. Um, and like that, that like, I'd much rather f- figure out how you help remixers and artists get paid than try and stop remixing, for example. Oh yeah, but absolutely. Yeah. Think, yeah. And so I think like how, how we think about these ecosystems and how we build and how we, um, try and do it in an ethical way. And, you know, I, like I said, I, I've, I'm, I'm a pretty mediocre musician, even though I love playing, but what I do do more successfully is write, right? Like I have published books and, and, and essays and stories and so forth. And I, I think about it a lot from that perspective, which is, I don't think I would care about someone repurposing stuff that I've done. Um, but I, I want to have some sort of say in the matter and I want it to be transparent and for there to be for me to get to decide that and I think that's that that's how I think about what we do at Audio Shake. 
Yeah, I think that's a very fair point, and I think it's it it's sort of easier to view the source when it when it's well when it's words. Words are can be scanned in and kind of digitized and sort of quantified. You can see a page of text. It's quite hard to see a page of data about an audio stem. I mean, you know, you know, the, you've got the metadata, but there's the actual nuts and but the stuff, the bits are quite hard to see. I suppose. I mean, the thing that what you're saying about art is really interesting because quite often. It's the approximation. This is what I think they played on the record, and I'm going to have a go at that because I, it inspires me. And usually, you don't get it right, and you get something something different comes out of it, and it's more an, a distillation. But it, as you say, I mean, in the classical world, they were always stealing each other's themes and reimagining them, and you know, doing that stuff. So, in, or I say stealing, but being influenced by. So it's perfectly acceptable. I suppose the thing is, is as we've become more concerned about the rights to our creative output then it becomes more of a thing that we become protective about so it's kind of hard to hard to disentangle yeah. that i think where when you were making the distinction between generative and non-generative i where i where i agree with you it's important is i actually think a lot about what what are the tools doing at the end of the day so for example like let's let's forget about creation or any of that right let's just think about web search which all of us use all the time that's trained on <laughs> a ton of data, right? It's yeah. trained on it's trained on a ton of text, some text which we might value highly and some text which we might not value highly. Um, but I don't think there's necessarily a huge debate, right? And for most people today around like web search and so forth, there's just this very functional kind of thing. Um, I don't think that there's, I, and I, I, but also no one is talking about that, like web search as something that is likely di displacing um, the, 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 the blogger. Right. And so I think what, what's in, so again, sound separation, stem separation, even if I have certain opinions about the, the training content and things like that, generally, I don't think that sound separation itself is replacing, you know, like, no, I don't, I don't yeah, think that's absolutely. a replacement conversation where, where we get to generative and where, I, and where I think your distinction is, is I agree with you is, you know, if someone's building a system that's trained on artists work, um, and then they're building a tool that they're then marketing on some level is saying, this is how all music's going to be made. And this is what's now going to take a certain percentage of our streaming listenership. Like that is a conversation, right? Yeah, of, absolutely. You know, and, and I'm, I, I do not buy into the hype that because we have generative music systems that people are going to start creating, stop creating, or that they're going to just push a button and be happy with that entire, like we have zero reason to create. Like we don't have to create today. We don't have, we didn't have to create before AI. So, and yet we still do. So I just, I just don't believe that all of a sudden we are disintermediating all humans and that no one's going to want to create music. But I do think that if that is going to take up a percentage of what we listen to, maybe because it'll flood the streaming platforms or because of, then we do have to look at like, what was that trained on? What are the mechanisms to, yeah. to compensate the people whose data was used in that? So I think consumer facing tools do, um, do deserve additional scrutiny. Okay, so let's let's turn that question on its head uh, and sort of say, where does this technology take us in a in a good scenario? What 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 good does it do us? Uh, I mean, I can see there's lots of uh, it opens up. You know, it, it improves poorly recorded things, or it, it gives people the opportunity to see and hear things. Where where else can it take us? Do you think? I mean, yeah, I think there's the uses for today which are, you know, just on our side, we've seen so many cases where 
uh, work that couldn't be monetized is now able to be monetized. So sync licensing is a great example of that. And yes, that has been on, you know, in the Warner earning call uh, earlier this year, they mentioned, you know, using, they were using Audio Shake to separate like Sammy Davis Jr. for a sync license and, and other work, right? But also it's, that's been true for indie artists and for others as well who have landed really big syncs thanks to the fact that they were able to get their instrumentals. So you have the things that today, like I said, sync, Dolby Atmos, those kinds of things that I think are opened up. I think what's interesting when we look at the future is the ability to separate audio algorithmically at scale um, can make audio much more present in our lives. Um, the idea that you could make all audio immersive, that you could make it immersive on the fly, that you could make it immersive in different environments. Like today, for example, it'd be, we're, we're somewhat prohibited by physics in say splitting stems on the fly and then like up mixing them into spatial in a car. Right. Mm. But maybe one day, you know, there's all kinds of things that you can imagine um, that I actually think bring music into more places that they're not in today because music is hard to deal with or audio is hard to deal with. And I think that's a really, I think it's a cool listening experience. I also think it's a really great opportunity for artists. Well, I suppose, you know, that real time is kind of the holy grail, isn't it? I mean, I was watching a program about the development of headphones, noise cancelling headphones specifically, where mm -hmm. they can antiphase it in the distance it takes from the microphone in my earbud to get to my actual eardrum. I mean, and that's mind-blowingly, you know, it's a physics race. It's like, how long does the sound take to travel that far? How yep. fast is the DSP to get it? So it's, I mean, theoretically, it must be possible. I mean, that must be... It is. But, but it's... Yeah. What do we need? I mean, we need big, powerful computers, or do we just need more, uh, I don't know, more, fast, more data? Yeah. So um, we, so for example, we do have um, real-time stem separation. We just launched it actually with the, the DJ app, DJ Pro by algorithm. Um, but there, you, there is a bit of buffer that start at the start right before the track. Yeah. And the, the advantage of that is it's giving you additional information. So you can make it actually as fast as you want. The problem is, is that you lose additional context um, audio is really interesting compared to say, if you think of like image or text and we can maybe the, even though this is not specific to generative, we can think about it in terms of generative things because probably all of your, or a lot of your listeners have played with like Dolly or yeah. some, or, you know, chat GPT. So, um, the challenges with audio, right. Are, um, you're dealing with things in high resolution um, you are, so we're talking about larger files, slower processing time. Um, you also are, uh, our ear is far more picky than our eyes are. Mm. I mean, all this is the brain, but we are much more likely to kind of bristle or, you know, stop when we hear something go wrong in audio, something that doesn't sound right, that's discordant, whatever it is. Then with an image, if we see a six figured person in a dolly rendering, um, we, we adjust for that. We're more forgiving on image than we are with audio. Yeah. Um, and the other part is narrative arc, right? It's not just a moment, like a, an image that you're seeing. It's what happened before needs to relate to the present needs to relate to the future. Right. So there's sort of a narrative arc that has to continue too. So if you, if you reduce and reduce and reduce the amount of context of what you're getting before you output the audio, um, you are 
potentially sacrificing the quality of that output. Right. So that's that's something that, you know, I'm optimistic that we will be able to get that smaller and smaller, but that remains a barrier today. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it is it is interesting that what you're doing, I mean, I've, I've heard loads of these things, you know, you kind of go, yeah, we've got this, we've got that. And, and most of the time it's like, yeah, it's OK, but this really is quite a lot different. And what do you what do you put that down to? The fact that you're I mean, perceptually, I don't know what about the other scores, but perceptually the, the output I've heard from obviously your curated examples does sound very impressive. The stereo imaging is extremely robust and there's you're not getting that kind of bits of other things in other stems it feels very uh um very solid i mean is that a special source or is that just kind of research and research and research no it's all just chat gpt and we threw a thing on top of it <laughs> called it audio shake yeah no um i mean we <laughs> that i think you know um uh i mean this is what we do right like we're a 12 person team the I think the majority, more than 75% of them are AI, like AI researcher PhDs focused entirely on this task of separating sound. So the, you know, um, we've won the Sony demixing challenge time named us to one of their best inventions of yeah. 2023 in the AI category. Thank you. Um, so I, you know, it's, I'd say it's focus, right? Uh, we are doing, yes, we are doing thing, things a bit different and special and so on and so forth. Um, but it's also like, this is the thing that we do is sound separation. Um, and it's funny when you were saying the curated examples, they are only curated to the degree that those were companies and artists that let us put them online. Right. <laughs> so, okay. Fair enough. Yeah. I, there's actually, it's funny. There's one that's on our website that I don't love. Um, that, it, that is, uh, the, the customer used a very, very, very heavily compressed MP3 right. and put it through our system. Um, and generally, when you're dealing with sound separation, whether you're using AudioShake or someone else, uh, we always advise people to start with lossless um, just because it's it's not like that debate between like MP3s and waves yeah. and all of that. And can you hear the difference? It's actually just you're dealing with something compressed. If you're then going to separate on top of that, you're just starting with something lower quality. Um, you're more likely to have artifacts. Anyway, there's one on our site that is um, someone used a very, very heavily compressed uh, MP3, separated it. Um, and I don't even love the output, uh, but they landed a Netflix, Netflix sync off of that. So, you know, anyway, so it's, it's, it's actually, it's on there. Cause I think it's like a, it's a nice way to be transparent about, um, the range that you can get depending on the starting point of your audio. There, I mean, is, is there a kind of, I mean, obviously heavily compromised sort of heavily compressed, but in terms of program material, are there things that are more challenging to separate? I mean, I, I would imagine orchestral stuff. I mean, that's a guess, but you may have a different set of um, criteria. Yeah. Orchestral is a great example. Um, for a few, I mean, the main reason there, because you can get right, you can go and license, um, orchestral music to train on and so forth, but what is that training data, right? People aren't typically tracking out every instrument in the orchestra. They're tracking it out by sections. Mm. So you can then you'll, you could, you could then separate again that section probably pretty well, but getting more granular is going to be more difficult. Um, uh, a lot of the the easiest places to go get stems, if you wanted to get violin stems, for example, would probably be um, through tracks that are made today, most of which are going to be synthetic right. sounds. So yeah, getting orchestral is, um, I mean, we've done some work on orchestral, um, 
but uh, th that's come out okay. But I think a lot of that is uh, also, I mean, yes, I'd like to think it's because of our technology, but I also think part of it was luck in terms of what people were choosing to separate. And right. what the, what the well, no, there's something is. that they want separated. I mean, they're not. I mean, they're not going to come to you. Can I? Can I have the first and second violins separated? Because that would be almost impossible. Right. I mean, you may as well just go and play it again. They do know? come. They do come and ask yeah. that, and I. Sadly, but I suppose say, if you, not... the, the larger, the more bombastic the work, you know, like if you've got the full requiem with the percussion, with the violins, with the with with the brass and the choral work, I mean, that would be easier than a, just a full choral piece where it was like, can we have the basses? Can we have the sopranos? I mean, that would be challenging, yeah. I guess. Yeah. And inter I mean, and the other thing that's fascinating is also it's like I say, the spatial information is very well. Um, very well it's kept you know very well in, uh, integrated and that's that's something that i've not heard before because usually you get a bit of it moves around the tails do not usually even off is that is it easier to work stereo or easier to work mono or are there or can can you separate atmos i mean what's the easiest sort of source material from just a channel count point of view uh that's a very good question i feel like i should actually defer to the research team on this i would say because I've, I've heard this debated internally, you know, right. uh, so there, you know, there's one researcher on our team that's sort of like a track is a track is a track because in all cases we're getting it as if it was mono, right? right. We're just getting the full mix. Um, but I, and, and I think what's also, but then others will say no stereo. I think there's also just the, something that's independent of that, which is what were the recording qualities of the time when most mono is, like is is from right you're you're talking about um generally less sophisticated equipment mm. um uh and then not only that and less sophisticated equipment less sophisticated setups like if again if i told this 1930 song which is very very famous um you know this beloved song the world over um you know someone's muffling a mic like that's probably not something that you would have today in a contemporary like recording suit that you know they would do a yeah. take again right um so you have those kinds of challenges which are completely independent of our ability to separate but come into play when you're looking at the final output right okay you now have doesn't have anything to do with the ai but you now have like mic muffling happening with someone's hand you've got to deal with it mm -hmm. um the other part that can be challenging with mono again that's not specific to a mono recording is related to the AI is that where is your STEM training data for mono recordings? Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. So you're, you're with, again, when we're talking about AI generally, um, you're going to do better on stuff that resembles your training data. So your goal is to have as ver diverse training data as possible, but how are you going back and getting, um, multi-tracked audio or STEM audio from the 1930s? <laughs> and so <laughs> That 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 can be um, that can be a challenge too. So I would, if I had to, like, if you had to pin me down, I'd say mono for that reason. Interesting, interesting. So I suppose the other thing is, I mean, and speaking of the training data, I mean that that's the sort of thing that's sort of easy to hoover up. I mean, do you, how do you acquire training data? Is it something that you kind of specifically license, or are you just kind of the mics are open and the windows are open and you just pull everything in whatever whatever is being listened to and it's sort of irrelevant what the actual music is it's just the com the composition and the, the the frequency ranges of it oh no 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 it definitely at first it's definitely not easy to get um and so you have a bunch of challenges first it's not easy to get 
Second, you don't want a bunch of data that has a ton of bleed in it, yeah. right? So you can't just open the windows and go out onto the street and record and this and that. Like, like you want really clean audio. And even in – there are lots of environments where um, where lots of sources where you could get stems, right? But there's bleed because right. – and, and the level of bleed that's at is not so significant that they would care about it for their purposes, but that you care about for your purposes. Um, the other challenge with um, training data is simply labeling, right? So you bounced your stems and you called your guitar guitar and I bounced my stems and I called my guitar wah-wah. Um, right. And then a third person bounced their stems and maybe, maybe they were a little drunk or tired when they did it and they actually forgot to change the label. And I don't know, they were in some DAW that automatically just applies the previous label to the stem. Wow. Yeah. And so, right. (laughs) Yeah. So you, um, you end up with this data that you can't really trust. Um, and so that's, that's a whole other component of it, which is, um, making sure that the data you have is reliable and properly labeled. So it sounds like to me, what you need is an audio shake house band who can just basically record all day, just playing, playing whatever you ask them. And then you just take the data and you train it off the stuff that you people play for you in your studio. Yeah, that um, someone actually <laughs> once asked me um, this. I, I Yeah, maybe that's all audio shake is, is someone inputs a track. and then the No, no, I don't mean like, that. I mean, but but for the no, training. I know, day, but for I'm the laughing. Training I'm laughing because that I remember I worked at Google and um I remember in the early days, people would ask if there was someone behind the computer typing the response. And so that's sort of the equivalent is us just having the house band. Um, The house band thing that you're saying, aside from the fact that it would probably be incredibly expensive, the bigger issue is that um, you want really diverse training data. So even if you had the most uh, skilled house band in the world that could just seamlessly switch between different countries' musical traditions and different eras and so on and so forth, there's probably going to still be some element of uh, Nashville's full of them, right? I mean, I, I've been amazed at the you know the, the the speed of turnaround that they do. So <laughs> this track's klezmer, this one's blues, right? You know, whichever. It's yeah, no, it's yeah. an interesting idea. But I mean, in terms of training data, I mean, I suppose it's, it has to start somewhere. So I mean, so and something that's very very specific. It's like we have a hole in our training data of this shape that you could actually almost fulfill i don't know how i mean i don't know how many tracks you're talking about i don't know whether it, you know whether 10 would do or whether it has to be like thousands and thousands in terms of yeah you're in the thousands and thousands yeah interesting mm-hmm. okay well it sounds like i mean the future sounds extremely bright and it sounds like next year is going to be really exciting i mean congratulations again you mentioned it briefly on the uh, the time uh, um, inventions of the year 2023 i mean that that must have been a great honor and that that must be something that you can talk with your parents over 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 christmas lunch because you know as we know most of most of the older generation and i put myself slightly inside of that don't don't get it you know they don't really understand what goes on behind the scenes of what you know i just tell people i'm a youtuber it's the easiest it's the easiest thing yeah i think that one of the things that's just um that can be intimidating for people of of many ages around ai is that we sometimes actually make it much more complicated than it is i think it's important to talk about it being ai or how you get from a to z if and when you need to have a conversation where you're analyzing what's happening under the hood. So it could be a conversation around ethics. It could be a conversation around um, API or latency, or you're talking to a bunch of uh, audio professionals that really want to understand what is it you're exactly separating and are you synthesizing or you right like all that kind of stuff. I think yeah. it makes sense to ground it in what is under the hood. 
But in the vast majority of use cases, right, like we should probably just think about it as technology or software and talk about what it's doing. And I think sometimes the the use of AI um, can make it seem intimidating to people. Like at the end of the day, um, you know, and what I say to my parents is, you know, that song that we're listening to right now, like I can pull the vocal off of it. Or imagine that if you could like just hear the guitar so that you could learn to play it or imagine like this or that. And then people get it right away. Or like, you want a karaoke to this, you need to get rid of the vocal. We can do that. So, you know, those are the, or you're in a, you're watching this sports thing and there's a locker room interview with LeBron. We can remove that music that's in the background. That's making it harder to hear him, you know? And so like those kinds of things, I think just rooting it in the practical is, is. Oh, most definitely. I mean, I think, I think, I I think that's the thing. AI has become the kind of bogeyman to a degree in, in many cultures in across many industries because it's misunderstood. I mean, we've got, we've got international summits kind of uh, discussing the kind of ramifications and it's all been lumped into this kind of big evil empire kind of uh, sort of scenario which i think as you say it's it's that's not really the answer it's not really the 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 question that should be asked is like what can it do it feels like you're quite positive about what this technology can do in the future and i think for instance you know there are integrations that could while you're creating you could be using the separation or the ai it could be i've taken the bass out of this that this little jam and i think maybe actually if you went to an f there it'd be that's, I, I hate to use the word clippy but i mean we're not f- if it was something that was actually useful rather than really irritating then there's definitely a lot of positives that could come out for it for people who are cr- who are working on creativity yeah clippy clippy you know we all know who clippy was or is so on some level they accomplished something didn't they <laughs> that's true uh thank you so much jessica i hope you have had a, a wonderful festive period or have one i know we're recording this before christmas and uh, you you have a, a good break because i'm sure you're working very hard great thank you so much thank you <laughs>